Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you, and you are welcome here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link to that and to various institutions fighting for reproductive justice are in the show notes. Welcome to August. We're getting through it and coming up on fall, which is my personal favorite season. The October project is coming along. I've got it about two-thirds of the way recorded and hope to have it done sooner rather than later. Contracting COVID back in June set me back and kind of broke my momentum. I'd been doing a lot of voiceover and audiobook auditions, had a lot more lined up, and then COVID sidelined me and I lost all of that drive. It's been hard trying to get back into the swing of it, and having a new job that runs me 10 hours a day hasn't really helped. I haven't been able to keep up the schedule I used to, and I feel bad about that. I felt kind of like I was letting people and myself down by not doing the recording I need to do and fulfilling the obligations I've taken on. I was working toward getting a three-hour recording-slash-editing window working, but with COVID and a new job, I just ran out of spoons to work with and found myself just laying in bed when I got home from work and putting off stuff until it was too late to do auditions. But I'm trying to get back to it and get my stuff going again. All that to say this. There will come a time in your life when things all crash around you. Some unforeseen problem will raise its head and it may smack you down hard. You may, like myself, feel that you are letting down the side by not doing the things you feel you should be doing. But that's not true. You are not letting anyone down or failing yourself by taking care of your mental well-being. You can't do anything to help anyone else if you don't help yourself first. So take whatever time you need, rest and recuperate. Take some time for your own mental health and well-being. You are not failing. You are not being selfish. You are not letting people down. And if someone says you are because of it, you don't need that toxicity in your life. Anyway, that's just a thought I had earlier this week, so I thought I'd put it out there. I don't know if any of you need to hear it, but there it is, just in case. If you feel burned out, you are allowed to stop and let yourself recover. Okay, let's get back to William Hope Hodgson and his delightful unintentional double entendres. The Chronicles of Karnaki the Ghost Finder. Volume 4, The Horse of the Invisible. I had that afternoon received an invitation from Karnaki. When I reached his place, I found him sitting alone. As I came into the room, he rose with a perceptibly stiff movement and extended his left hand. His face seemed to be badly scarred and bruised, and his right hand was bandaged. He shook hands and offered me his paper, which I refused. Then he passed me a handful of photographs and returned to his reading. Now, that is just Karnaki. Not a word had come from him and not a question from me. He would tell us all about it later. I spent about half an hour looking at the photographs, which were chiefly snaps, some by flashlight, of an extraordinarily pretty girl, though in some of the photographs it was wonderful that her prettiness was so evident, for so frightened and startled was her expression, that it was difficult not to believe that she had been photographed in the presence of some imminent and overwhelming danger. The bulk of the photographs were of interiors of different rooms and passages, and in every one the girl might be seen, either full length in the distance or closer, with perhaps a little more than a hand or arm or portion of the head or dress included in the photograph. 
All of these had evidently been taken with some definite aim that did not have for its first purpose the picturing of the girl, but obviously of her surroundings, and they made me very curious, as you can imagine. Near the bottom of the pile, however, I came upon something definitely extraordinary. It was a photograph of the girl standing abrupt and clear in the great blaze of a flashlight, as was plain to be seen. Her face was turned a little upward as if she had been frightened suddenly by some noise. Directly above her, as if half-formed and coming down out of the shadows, was the shape of a single enormous hoof. I examined this photograph for a long time, without understanding it more than it had probably to do with some queer case in which Karnacki was interested. When Jessop, Arkwright, and Taylor came in, Karnacki quietly held out his hand for the photographs, which I returned in the same spirit, and afterward we all went in to dinner. When we had spent a quiet hour at the table, we pulled our chairs round and made ourselves snug, and Karnacki began. "'I've been north,' he said, speaking slowly and painfully between puffs at his pipe, "'up to Hisgins of East Lancashire. "'It's been a pretty strange business all round, "'as I fancy you chaps will think when I have finished. "'I know before I went something about the horse story, "'as I have heard it called, "'but I never thought of it coming my way somehow.' Also, I know now that I never considered it seriously, in spite of my rule always to keep an open mind. Funny creatures, we humans. Well, I got a wire asking for an appointment, which of course told me that there was some trouble. On the date I fixed, old Captain Hisgins himself came up to see me. He told me a great many new details about the horse story. Though naturally I had always known the main points and understood that if the first child were a girl, that girl would be haunted by the horse during her courtship. It is, as you can see, already an extraordinary story, and though I have always known about it, I have never thought it to be anything more than an old-time legend, as I have already hinted. You see, for seven generations the Hisgins family have had men-children for their firstborn, and even the Hisginses themselves have long considered the tale to be little more than a myth. To come to the present... The eldest child of the reigning family is a girl, and she has been often teased and warned in jest by her friends and relations that she is the first girl to be the eldest for seven generations, and that she would have to keep her men friends at arm's length or go into a nunnery if she hoped to escape the haunting. And this, I think, shows us how thoroughly the tale had grown to be considered as nothing worthy of the least serious thought. Don't you think so? Two months ago, Miss Hisgins became engaged to Beaumont, a young naval officer, and on the evening of the very day of their engagement, before it was even formally announced, a most extraordinary thing happened, which resulted in Captain Hisgins making the appointment and my ultimately going down to their place to look into the thing. From the old family records and papers that were entrusted to me, I found that there could be no possible doubt that prior to something like 150 years ago, there were some very extraordinary and disagreeable coincidences, to put the thing in the least emotional way. In the whole of the two centuries prior to that date, there were five firstborn girls out of a total of seven generations of the family. Each of these girls grew up to maidenhood, and each became engaged, and each one died during the period of engagement, two by suicide, one by falling from a window, one from a broken heart, presumably heart failure owing to sudden shock through fright. The fifth girl was killed one evening in the park round the house, but just how there seemed to be no exact knowledge only that there was an impression that she had been kicked by a horse. She was dead when found. Now, you see, all of these deaths might be attributed in a way, even the suicides, to natural causes, I mean, as distinct from supernatural, you see? 
Yet, in every case, the maidens had undoubtedly suffered some extraordinary and terrifying experiences during their various courtships, for in all of the records there was mention either of the neighing of an unseen horse or of the sounds of an invisible horse galloping, as well as many other peculiar and quite inexplicable manifestations. You begin to understand now, I think, just how extraordinary a business it was that I was asked to look into. I gathered from one account that the haunting of the girls was so constant and horrible that two of the girls' lovers fairly ran away from their lady loves. And I think it was this, more than anything else, that made me feel that there had been something more in it than a mere succession of uncomfortable coincidences. I got hold of these facts before I had been many hours in the house, and after this I went pretty carefully into the details of the thing that happened on the night of Miss Hisgins' engagement to Beaumont. It seems that as the two of them were going through the big lower corridor just after dusk and before the lamps had been lighted, there had been a sudden horrible neighing in the corridor close to them. Immediately afterward, Beaumont received a tremendous blow or kick which broke his right forearm. Then the rest of the family and the servants came running to know what was wrong. Lights were brought and the corridor and afterwards the whole house searched, but nothing unusual was found. You can imagine the excitement in the house and the half-incredulous, half-believing talk about the old legend. Then later, in the middle of the night, the old captain was waked by the sound of a great horse galloping round and round the house. Several times after this, both Beaumont and the girl said that they had heard the sounds of hooves near to them after dark in several of the rooms and corridors. Three nights later, Beaumont was waked by a strange neighing in the nighttime seeming to come from the direction of his sweetheart's bedroom. He ran hurriedly for her father, and the two of them raced to her room. They found her awake and ill with sheer terror, having been awakened by the neighing seemingly close to her bed. The night before I arrived, there had been a fresh happening, and they were all in a frightfully nervy state, as you can imagine. I spent most of the first day, as I have hinted, in getting hold of details, but after dinner I slacked off and played billiards all the evening with Beaumont and Miss Hisgins. We stopped about ten o'clock and had coffee, and I got Beaumont to give me full particulars about the thing that had happened the evening before. He and Miss Hisgins had been sitting... <sighs> he and Miss Hisgins had been sitting quietly in her aunt's boudoir whilst the old lady chaperoned them behind a book. It was growing dusk and the lamp was at her end of the table. The rest of the house was not yet lit as the evening had come earlier than usual. Well... It seems that the door into the hall was open, and suddenly the girl said, Hush! What's that? They both listened, and then Beaumont heard it, the sound of a horse outside of the front door. Your father, he suggested, but she reminded him that her father was not riding. Of course, they were both ready to feel queer, as you can suppose, but Beaumont made an effort to shake this off, and went into the hall to see whether anyone was at the entrance. It was pretty dark in the hall, and he could see the glass panels of the inner draft door clear-cut in the darkness of the hall. He walked over to the glass and looked through into the drive beyond, but there was nothing in sight. He felt nervous and puzzled, and opened the inner door, and went out onto the carriage circle. Almost directly afterward, the great hall door swung to with a crash behind him. He told me that he had a sudden awful feeling of having been trapped in some way. That's how he put it. He whirled round and gripped the door handle, but something seemed to be holding it with a vast grip on the other side. Then before he could be fixed in his mind that this was so, he was able to turn the handle and open the door. He paused a moment in the doorway and peered into the hall, for he had hardly steadied his mind sufficiently to know whether he was really frightened or not. 
Then he heard his sweetheart blow him a kiss out of the grayness of the big, unlit hall, and he knew that she had followed him from the boudoir. He blew her a kiss back and stepped inside the doorway, meaning to go to her. And then suddenly, in a flash of sickening knowledge, he knew that it was not his sweetheart who had blown him that kiss. He knew that something was trying to tempt him alone into the darkness and that the girl had never left the boudoir. He jumped back, and in the same instant of time he heard the kiss again nearer to him. He called out at the top of his voice, Mary, stay in the boudoir. Don't move out of the boudoir until I come to you. He heard her call something in reply from the boudoir, and then he had struck a clump of a dozen or so matches and was holding them above his head and looking round the hall. There was no one in it, but even as the matches burned out, there came the sounds of a great horse galloping down the empty drive. Now, you see, both he and the girl had heard the sounds of the horse galloping, but when I questioned more closely, I found that the aunt had heard nothing, though it is true she's a bit deaf and was further back in the room. Of course, both he and Miss Hisgins had been in an extremely nervous state and ready to hear anything. The door might have been slammed by a sudden puff of wind owing to some inner door being opened, and as for the grip on the handle, that may have been nothing more than snick catching. With regard to the kisses and the sounds of the horse galloping, I pointed out that these might have seemed ordinary enough sounds if they had been only cool enough to reason. As I told him, and as he knew, the sounds of a horse galloping carry a long way on the wind, so that what he heard might have been nothing more than a horse being ridden some distance away. And as for the kiss, plenty of quiet noises, the rustle of a paper or a leaf, have a somewhat similar sound, especially if one is in an overstrung condition and imagining things. I finished preaching this little sermon on common sense versus hysteria as we put out the lights and left the billiard room, but neither Beaumont nor Miss Higgins would agree that there had been any fancy on their parts. We had come out of the billiard room by this time, and were going along the passage, and I was still doing my best to make both of them see the ordinary, commonplace possibilities of the happening, when what killed my pig, as the saying goes, was the sound of a hoof in the dark billiard room we had just left. I felt the creep come on me in a flash up my spine and over the back of my head. Miss Hisgins whooped like a child with a whooping cough and ran up the passage giving little gasping screams. Beaumont, however, ripped round on his heels and jumped back a couple of yards. I gave back, too, a bit, as you can understand. There it is, he said in a low, breathless voice. Perhaps you'll believe now. There's certainly something, I whispered, never taking my gaze off the closed door of the billiard room. Hush, he muttered. There it is again. There was a sound like a great horse pacing round and round the billiard room with slow, deliberate steps. A horrible, cold fright took me so that it seemed impossible to take a full breath. You know the feeling. And then I saw we must have been walking backward, for we found ourselves suddenly at the opening of the long passage. We stopped there and listened. The sounds went on steadily with a horrible sort of deliberateness, as if the brute were taking a sort of malicious gusto and walking about all over the room which we had just occupied. Do you understand what I mean? Then there was a pause and a long time of absolute quiet, except for an excited whispering from some of the people down in the big hall. The sound came plainly up the wide stairway. I fancy they were gathered round Miss Hisgins with some notion of protecting her. I should think Beaumont and I stood there at the end of the passage for about five minutes, listening for any noise in the billiard room. Then I realized what a horrible funk I was in, and I said to him, "'I'm going to see what's there.' "'So am I,' he answered." He was pretty white, but he had heaps of pluck. 
I told him to wait one instant and I made a dash into my bedroom and got my camera and flashlight. I slipped my revolver into my right-hand pocket and a knuckle duster over my left fist where it was ready and yet would not stop me from being able to work my flashlight. Then I ran back to Beaumont. He held out his hand to show me that he had his pistol and I nodded, but whispered to him not to be too quick to shoot as there might be some silly practical joking at work after all. He had got a lamp from a bracket in the upper hall which he was holding in the crook of his damaged arm so that we had a good light. Then we went down the passage toward the billiard room and you can imagine that we were a pretty nervous couple. All this time there had not been a sound, but abruptly when we were within perhaps a couple of yards of the door we heard the sudden clumping of a hoof on the solid parquet floor of the billiard room. In an instant afterward, it seemed to me that the whole place shook beneath the ponderous hoof falls of some huge thing coming toward the door. Both Beaumont and I gave back a pace or two, and then realized and hung on to our courage, as you might say, and waited. The great tread came right up to the door, and then stopped, and there was an instant of absolute silence, except that so far as I was concerned, the pulsing in my throat and temples almost deafened me. I dare say we waited quite half a minute, and then came the further restless clumping of a great hoof. Immediately afterward, the sounds came right on as if some invisible thing passed through the closed door, and the ponderous tread was upon us. We jumped, each of us, to our side of the passage, and I know that I spread myself stiff against the wall. The clunk, 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 clunk of the great hoof falls passed right between us, and slowly and with deadly deliberateness down the passage. I heard them through a haze of blood beats in my ears and temples, and my body was extraordinarily rigid and pringling, and I was horribly breathless. I stood for a little time like this, my head turned so that I could see up the passage. I was conscious only that there was a hideous danger abroad. Do you understand? And then suddenly my pluck came back to me. I was aware that the noise of the hoofbeat sounded near the other end of the passage. I twisted quickly and got my camera to bear and snapped off the flashlight. Immediately afterward, Beaumont let fly a storm of shots down the passage and began to run, shouting, It's off to Mary! Run! Run! He rushed down the passage and I after him. We came out on the main landing and heard the sound of a hoof on the stairs, and after that, nothing, and from thence onward, nothing. Down below us in the big hall, I could see a number of the household round Miss Higgins who seemed to have fainted, and there were several of the servants clumped together a little way off, staring up at the main landing, and no one saying a single word. And about some twenty steps up the stairs was the old Captain Hisgins with a drawn sword in his hand where he had halted just before the last hoof sound. I think I never saw anything finer than the old man standing there between his daughter and that infernal thing. I dare say you can understand the queer feeling of horror I had at passing that place on the stairs where the sounds had ceased. It was as if the monster were still standing there, invisible, and the peculiar thing was that we never heard another sound of the hoof, either up or down the stairs. After they had taken Miss Hisgins to her room, I sent word that I should follow so soon as they were ready for me, and presently, when a message came to tell me that I could come any time, I asked her father to give me a hand with my instrument box, and between us we carried it into the girl's bedroom. I had the bed pulled well out into the middle of the room, after which I erected the electric pentacle round the bed. Then I directed that lamps should be placed round the room, but that on no account must any light be made within the pentacle, neither must anyone pass in or out. 
The girl's mother I had placed within the pentacle and directed that her maid should sit without, ready to carry any message so as to make sure that Mrs. Hisgins did not have to leave the pentacle. I suggested also that the girl's father should stay the night in the room and that he had better be armed. When I left the bedroom, I found Beaumont waiting outside the door in a miserable state of anxiety. I told him what I had done and explained to him that Miss Hisgins was probably perfectly safe within the protection, but that, in addition to her father remaining the night in the room, I intended to stand guard at the door. I told him that I should like him to keep me company, for I knew that he could never sleep, feeling as he did, and I should not be sorry to have a companion. Also, I wanted to have him under my own observation, for there was no doubt but that he was actually in greater danger in some ways than the girl. At least, that was my opinion, and is still, as I think you'll agree later. I asked him whether he would object to my drawing a pentacle round him for the night, and got him to agree, but I saw that he did not know whether to be superstitious about it or to regard it more as a piece of foolish mumming, but he took it seriously enough when I gave him some particulars about the Black Veil case when young Astor died. You remember? He said it was a piece of silly superstition and stayed outside. Poor devil. Night passed quietly enough until a little while before dawn when we both heard the sounds of a great horse galloping round and round the house, just as old Captain Hisgins had described it. You can imagine how queer it made me feel, and directly afterward I heard someone stir within the bedroom. I knocked at the door, for I was uneasy, and the captain came. I asked whether everything was right, to which he replied yes, and immediately asked me whether I had heard the galloping, so that I knew he had heard them also. I suggested that it might be well to leave the bedroom door open a little until the dawn came in, as there was certainly something abroad. This was done, and then he went back into the room to be near his wife and daughter. I had better say here that I was doubtful whether there was any value in the defense about Miss Hisgins, for what I term the personal sounds of the manifestation were so extraordinarily material that I was inclined to parallel the case with that one of Harford's where the hand of the child kept materializing within the pentacle and patting the floor. As you will remember, that was a hideous business. Yet, as it chanced, nothing further happened, and so soon as daylight had fully come, we all went off to bed. Beaumont knocked me up about midday, and I went down and made breakfast into lunch. Miss Hisgins was there and seemed in very fair spirits, considering. She told me that I had made her feel almost safe for the first time in days. She told me also that her cousin, Harry Parskett, was coming down from London, and she knew that he would do anything to help fight the ghost. And after that, she and Beaumont went out into the grounds to have a little time together. I had a walk in the grounds myself and went round the house, but saw no traces of hoof marks, and after that I spent the rest of the day making an examination of the house, but found nothing. I made an end of my search before dark and went to my room to dress for dinner. When I got down, the cousin had just arrived, and I found him one of the nicest men I have met for a long time. A chap with a tremendous amount of pluck, and the particular kind of man I like to have with me in a bad case like the one I was on. I could see that what puzzled him most was our belief in the genuineness of the haunting, and I found myself almost wanting something to happen just to show him how true it was. As it chanced, something did happen. With a vengeance. Beaumont and Miss Hisgins had gone out for a stroll just before the dusk, and Captain Hisgins asked me to come into his study for a short chat whilst Parskett went upstairs with his traps, for he had no man with him. I had a long conversation with the old captain in which I pointed out that the haunting had evidently no particular connection with the house, 
but only with the girl herself, and that the sooner she was married, the better, as it would give Beaumont a right to be with her at all times, and further than this, it might be that the manifestations would cease if the marriage were actually performed. The old man nodded agreement to this, especially to the first part, and reminded me that three of the girls who were said to have been haunted had been sent away from home and met their deaths whilst away. And then in the midst of our talk, there came a pretty frightening interruption, for all at once the old butler rushed into the room most extraordinarily pale. "'Miss Mary, sir! Miss Mary, sir!' he gasped. "'She's screaming! Out in the park, sir! And they say they can hear the horse!' The captain made one dive for a rack of arms and snatched down his old sword and ran out, drawing it as he ran. I dashed out and up the stairs, snatched my camera flashlight and a heavy revolver, gave one yell at Parskett's store, the horse, and was down and into the grounds. Away in the darkness, there was a confused shouting, and I caught the sounds of shooting out among the scattered trees. And then from a patch of blackness to my left, there burst suddenly an infernal, gobbling sort of neighing. Instantly, I whipped round and snapped off the flashlight. The great light blazed out momentarily, showing me the leaves of a big tree close at hand, quivering in the night breeze. But I saw nothing else, and then the tenfold blackness came down upon me, and I heard Parskett shouting a little way back to know whether I had seen anything. The next instant he was beside me, and I felt safer for his company, for there was some incredible thing near to us, and I was momentarily blind because of the brightness of the flashlight. "'What was it? What was it?' he kept repeating in an excited voice. And all the time I was staring into the darkness and answering mechanically, I don't know, I don't know. There was a burst of shouting somewhere ahead and then a shot. We ran toward the sounds, yelling to the people not to shoot, for in the darkness and panic there was this danger also. Then there came two of the gamekeepers racing hard up the drive with their lanterns and guns, and immediately afterward a row of lights dancing toward us from the house carried by some of the men's servants. As the lights came up I saw we had come close to Beaumont. He was standing over Miss Hisgins and had his revolver in his hand. Then I saw his face, and there was a great wound across his forehead. By him was the captain, turning his naked sword this way and that and peering into the darkness. A little behind him stood the old butler, a battle-axe from one of the armstands in the hall in his hands. Yet there was nothing strange to be seen anywhere. We got the girl into the house and left her with her mother in Beaumont, whilst a groom rode for a doctor, and then the rest of us, with four other keepers, all armed with guns and carrying lanterns, searched round the home park. But we found nothing. When we got back, we found that the doctor had been. He had bound up Beaumont's wound, which luckily was not deep, and ordered Miss Hisgins straight to bed. I went upstairs with the captain and found Beaumont on guard outside of the girl's door. I asked him how he felt, and then, so soon as the girl and her mother were ready for us, Captain Hisgins and I went into the bedroom and fixed the pentacle again round the bed. They had already got lamps about the room, and after I had set the same order of watching as on the previous night, I joined Beaumont outside of the door. Parskett had come up while I'd been in the bedroom, and between us we got some idea from Beaumont as to what had happened out in the park. It seems that they were coming home after their stroll from the direction of the West Lodge. It had got quite dark, and suddenly Miss Hisgins said, Hush! and came to a standstill. He stopped and listened, but heard nothing for a little. Then he caught it, the sound of a horse, seemingly a long way off, galloping towards them over the grass. He told the girl that it was nothing and started to hurry her toward the house, but she was not deceived, of course. In less than a minute they heard it quite close to them in the darkness and they started running. Then Miss Hisgins caught her foot and fell. She began to scream, and that is what the butler heard. As Beaumont lifted the girl, he heard the hooves come thudding right at him, 
He stood over her and fired all five chambers of his revolver right at the sounds. He told us that he was sure he saw something that looked like an enormous horse's head right upon him in the light of the last flash of his pistol. Immediately afterward, he was struck a tremendous blow which knocked him down, and then the captain and the butler came running up shouting. The rest, of course, we knew. About ten o'clock, the butler brought us up a tray, for which I was very glad, as the night before I had got rather hungry. I warned Beaumont, however, to be very particular not to drink any spirits, and I also made him give me his pipe and matches. At midnight I drew a pentacle round him, and Parsket and I sat one on each side of him outside the pentacle, for I had no fear that there would be any manifestation made against anyone except Beaumont or Miss Hisgins. After that we kept pretty quiet. The passage was lit by a big lamp at each end so that we had plenty of light and we were all armed, Beaumont and I with revolvers and Parsket with a shotgun. In addition to my weapon, I had my camera and flashlight. Now and again we talked in whispers, and twice the captain came out of the bedroom to have a word with us. About half past one we had all grown very silent, and suddenly, about twenty minutes later, I held up my hand silently, for there seemed to be a sound of galloping out in the night. I knocked on the bedroom door for the captain to open it, and when he came I whispered to him that we thought we heard the horse. For some time we stayed listening, and both Parskett and the captain thought they heard it, but now I was not so sure, and neither was Beaumont. Yet afterward I thought I heard it again. I told Captain Hisgins I thought he had better go into the bedroom and leave the door a little open, and this he did. But from that time onward we heard nothing, and presently the dawn came in, and we all went very thankfully to bed. When I was called at lunchtime I had a little surprise, for Captain Hisgins told me that they had held a family council and had decided to take my advice and have the marriage without a day's more delay than possible. Beaumont was already on his way to London to get a special license, and they hoped to have the wedding the next day. This pleased me, for it seemed the sanest thing to be done in the extraordinary circumstances, and meanwhile I should continue my investigations. But until the marriage was accomplished, my chief thought was to keep Miss Hisgins near to me. After lunch, I thought I would take a few experimental photographs of Miss Hisgins and her surroundings. Sometimes the camera sees things that would seem very strange to normal human eyesight. With this intention, and partly to make an excuse to keep her in my company as much as possible, I asked Miss Hisgins to join me in my experiments. She seemed glad to do this, and I spent several hours with her wandering all over the house from room to room, and whenever the impulse came I took a flashlight of her and the room or corridor in which we chanced to be at the moment. After we had gone right through the house in this fashion, I asked her whether she felt sufficiently brave to repeat the experiments in the cellars. She said yes, and so I rooted out Captain Hisgins and Parskett, for I was not going to take her even into what you might call artificial darkness without help and companionship at hand. When we were ready, we went down into the wine cellar, Captain Hisgins carrying a shotgun, and Parskett especially prepared background and a lantern. I got the girl to stand in the middle of the cellar whilst Parskett and the captain held out the background behind her. Then I fired off the flashlight, and we went into the next cellar where we repeated the experiment. Then in the third cellar, a tremendous, pitch-dark place, something extraordinary and horrible manifested itself. I had stationed Miss Hisgins in the center of the place with her father and Parskett holding the background as before. When all was ready, and just as I pressed the trigger of the flash, there came in the cellar that dreadful gobbling neighing that I had heard out in the park. It seemed to come from somewhere above the girl, and in the glare of the sudden light I saw that she was staring tensely upward, but at no visible thing. 
and then, in the succeeding comparative darkness, I was shouting to the captain and Parskett to run Miss Hisgins out into the daylight. And that is the end of part one of this story. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash theweirdtalespodcast. Every dollar goes back into the show and helps pay for things like hosting fees, guest readers, and a mint condition PSA grade 10 Pikachu illustrator card I've had my eye on for a little bit now. Thank you, Lucas Nicholson, Franklin Jones, and Andrew Buchanan for your support. It means a lot to me that you'd kick in some money and help my silly little show. I am so grateful to you all. Please feel free to email me with whatever thoughts, comments, criticisms, concerns, ramblings, puzzles, riddles, or commissions you might want to offer. The Weird Tales Podcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to leave me a rating and review on the podcast player of your choice. Please, please, please wear a mask and get all the vaccinations you are legally and ethically allowed to jam into your body. I don't want to go off on a whole tear about it again, so please just do it, okay? Punch a racist in the face, or at least shame them loudly and often. If you happen to see a conservative member of the Supreme Court or one of the fascist, authoritarian, seditious GOP asshats just, you know, out and about, feel free to peacefully exercise your First Amendment constitutional rights to peacefully assemble, speak, and petition the government for a redress of grievances. And always remember that the most important thing you can say is, I will do better, and the most important step you can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you next week. You see, for seven generations, the Hisgins family have had men... You see, for seven generations, the Hisgins family have had men children for their firstborn. And even the Hisginses themselves... (laughs) Good Lord! Why do we have that name? Why do you have that name, Will? Why? Hisgins? Like, H-I-S-G-I-N-S. And then you want to pluralize it so we get Hisginses. Like, hey. (laughs) All right. She told me also that her cousin, Harry Parskett, was coming down from... (laughs) Uh, Whenever my Parskett gets hairy, I have to shave it. I just, I can't stand a Harry Parskett. All right. See, and I, I was so proud of myself for not making a comment about how Beaumont knocked him up. And there are just Harry Parskett. All right.